Luke chapter 22, verses 31 through 38. Let's hear God's holy, inerrant, and infallible word. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. But he said to him, Lord, with you, I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag and whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this is that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he has he was numbered with transgressors for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Let's pray. Well, Father, we ask your blessing upon the reading and preaching of your word, and we pray that you would hide your word deep within our hearts, that we might not sin against you, and we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this is a very interesting text, and uh, it's one of the few where uh, Jesus speaks to the disciples and actually encourages them to take up a sword, and I, I hope to speak to that today. But more than that, I think there are far more significant things within the passage today. And I want to point them out to you right from the beginning. Jesus has been speaking with the disciples. This is that most intimate portion of his conversations with his disciples in the upper room. There is a vast section of all that he is speaking with them. Look at the other Gospels, the accounts of the upper room discourse, especially in John. Uh, in John's gospel, but he is sharing the last minute instructions, all those necessary things that they need to hear before he is no longer with them. And that is the focus. He will be soon no longer with them. He has his death very much in view. And they, in light of all the things that he is saying to them, they have begun a discussion amongst themselves, who is the greatest? Now, this has been born out of most likely their various seating arrangements there around uh, the provision for the Passover meal that they are partaking of. Uh, And or it concerns what Jesus has just raised with them. And that is that there is one amongst them who is, in fact, uh, going to betray the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they have begun this discussion. Who is the greatest? I'm greater than you. You know, I was chosen in a better position than you. I've been with the Lord the longest. And uh, even the sons of Zebedee, we have been promised a place in some way of significance with the Lord Jesus. Well, it's in the midst of that that Jesus compassionately looks over at Peter And he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. We see two things in this passage today. One, Satan's demand. And two, the two great things that the Savior does for every Christian. We'll get to the second, but first, 
Satan's demand. The danger for believers is that we are always in danger. And that's the reality in the Christian life. Satan, the adversary in Hebrew, Satan in Greek, is the one who Jesus gives reference to in that moment saying, Simon, Simon, Satan wants you. He wants you. What a sobering thing to hear, isn't it? What an overwhelming thing to hear. Satan desires you. But but Jesus uses in verse 31 two times the word you and, 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 and the pronoun you. And that you is in fact plural. And so Jesus is saying, Simon, Simon, Satan is asked, Satan is demanded that you, all of you, be given over to him for sifting. But then in verse 32, he uses the singular you, but you I'm praying for, that when you have turned, you will in fact return, and then you will encourage your brethren. It it really brings to light the spiritual warfare that they, as the disciples, are in in that moment. They're... Jesus says Satan wants to sift you. It's it's like wheat. It's it's the threshing of wheat. You're familiar with the process. Maybe you're not from an agrarian society, but we've all seen ancient farmers take grain that is all chopped up and lift it into the air and constantly throw and throw it again and again and again until the lighter chaff and the sticks and the branches and the leaves uh, all flow out in the wind, but the grain continues to fall to the ground and eventually is left with only grain. In today's modern combines, it's whipped through wind tunnels and uh, there is a great wind that blows off the chaff and the grain continues up the belt and into the hopper. Satan desires to shake, to sift, to blow at you and ultimately his goal is to destroy you. So Jesus brings to light this this. This truth. There is a spiritual being condemned by God, ancient being who is at the beginning of the creation, a being who lied and deceived from the very beginning, who was a deceiver, who fell from grace, who is numbered amongst the fallen and condemned angels. And he is called at times in Scripture the God of this world, although he is in reality God of nothing. But he is an ancient spiritual being condemned by God, not able to be harmed by guns or swords or arrows or nuclear bombs. He is a spiritual being condemned by God, accountable to God, whose pledged and passionate pursuit is to drive out of the name, out the name of Jesus Christ from this world and to destroy the faith of all who believe in him. And he's been doing it for thousands of years. And he is still just as malevolent, malevolent, still just as deceitful, and still just as much after you and me as he was the disciples. Satan is called in various ways in Scripture the serpent. He is the serpent of Genesis. He is the dragon of Revelation. He is the adversary. He is Christ's enemy. He is the devil. He is the accuser. He's the wicked one who is behind all sin. And he is the spiritual prince of the power of the air. He is, in fact, that quiet voice behind every single sin. 
It doesn't take away from our responsibilities and that we are responsible beings. We are responsible moral agents. But Satan is the suggestion behind every sin. He finds within us the seed of every sin within our own heart. He finds with us within us a discontent with God and with God's provision for us. But he is the one behind every suggestion to sin. Mindful or not of spiritual warfare, warfare is always going on around us. And it involves you and me intimately, that inner heart struggle with sin, that that when we're pulled into worldly pursuits, when temptation comes, when, when prayer is forsaken, when the Word of God is neglected, the spiritual conflict in heavenly places is cosmic, it is intense, it is ongoing, it is not going to end in this life and until Christ comes again. It is of life and death significance and it is certain in its eventual outcome that one day Christ will achieve the final victory. And even now that victory has been won by virtue of Christ's sacrifice of himself upon the cross. And then in his being raised from the dead and ascending unto God the Father, he has won the victory over sin and death and of the devil and the accuser And one day he will come to judge him and cast him irrevocably into everlasting punishment, death, and hell. But until that time, you are engaged in a spiritual warfare every moment of your lives. And the decision is always before you to live for Christ or to live for self. And Satan is always suggesting and always whispering in your ear, self, choose self, forsake the Lord, leave off this God whom you do not see, forsake this God who calls for so much from you, accept the pleasures of the world and they will satisfy your soul. Forsake the Lord because faith is difficult And the way of the Christian life is too much to ask of a a busy person. These are the suggestions of Satan and many, 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 many more. And yet the Holy Spirit is present within us as well. And he is saying, no, follow the directions of the friend of your soul. Come and follow Jesus Christ. Come and experience the richness of everlasting life and the riches of grace, and the lavishness of the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit within your inner being. And thanks be to God that he is continually winning that war little by little, day by day. In Revelation chapter 12, it refers to the ongoing work of Satan. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God day and night. Even this very day, even in this very moment, while you sit in the pew and worship the Lord and attentively listen to his word, Satan is accusing you before God even now. What is he accusing you about? He's accusing the Lord Jesus Christ because of your and my inability to sit and to give God our wholehearted devotion for an hour and a half. 
He is accusing God and you even right now this morning because your thoughts and my thoughts are going in all different directions. And the worship that we owe to God is insufficiently recognizing of his infinite worth. He is accusing you before God right now saying you are disqualified as a worshiper because of the sins which you have engaged in this past week. He is accusing you before God right now and before your Savior saying, surely the blood of Christ cannot atone for the sins of this wretched sinner. And yet, and we'll say much more about it in a few moments, Jesus is praying for you. We'll see. We'll see what I mean by that. But I don't want to leave you without that hope even now. Satan entices, he encourages sin, he, he, he lies, he deceives, and he has been deceiving and lying since the beginning. He desires that we should share in his rejection and misery and destruction. He accuses us before the Lord, and he accuses us in our conscience, and he mockingly accuses us that we are in some way disqualified from the grace of God in Christ Jesus. And we can see how easy it is for him to do so because of the overconfidence of believers. And Peter is deeply overconfident in verse 33 when uh, he, he says boldly, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go to both prison and to death. And maybe in that moment, Peter was. Maybe in that moment, Peter filled up with so much having eaten of the supper and receiving the body and blood of the Lord representatively, metaphorically, in the supper, having had grace increased in his heart through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, encouraging in all that the Lord had just said, and receiving this word from him, for indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined. And they began to discuss all of these things and all that he has said, and he's so full of his rich spiritual privileges in Christ, and he is there intimately with the Lord in the last moment, and maybe he feels that way. But soon the Lord will be accused and he will be before his accusers and Peter will be alone. And of course the Lord is with him in every way. He is not separated from the Spirit of the Lord. But nonetheless he will be physically alone. And a mere slave girl questions him repeatedly. We'll see it only in a few more verses. And Peter ultimately will, the third time, he will say, I do not even know this man. He will deny that he is a follower of Christ, and he will deny it further, and with an oath, and then he will say, I don't even know him. And yet here is Peter saying in verse 33, I'm willing to go to prison, and I'm willing to die for you. And there are moments when the Christian feels like, I'll do anything for Jesus Christ. Anything you ask, Lord. And there are other moments when we say, oh, my flesh is weak. And I I find it so hard to even invite someone to the upcoming Sunday of Friend Day. Because we're scared and we're timorous and we're fearful. We have a lot of overconfidence. And Jesus clarifies to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. 
But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you return, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. After Peter says, I'm ready to go to prison and to death, Jesus says, I say to you, Peter, the rooster will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. Indeed, Peter does this. Jesus uses Simon, Simon, which is Peter's Aramaic name. It's it's who he is, and it's, it's, it's a very gentle and compassionate statement. Uh, you remember that Jesus has renamed Peter, and he said, Simon, you are Petros, or Petra, the rock. And what he is saying to Peter is that his faith in Christ is of great strength. It is, it is a, a strong and committed faith. And his statement of faith of, as to who Jesus is, just before Jesus says that to him, is in fact the foundation of the faith. And yet he is saying, Simon, Simon, you are a man like any other. And even you will deny me. Jesus shocks Peter, and Peter fell badly. He did. He fell badly, though he was utterly sure of himself. And isn't it true that, and here Peter just shows that for us, that the heart is deceitful above all things. It is desperately wicked. Who can know it? We say all manner of things, and we make all kinds of promises, uh, some of which we have no intention of keeping, but others of which we sincerely want to keep. And yet the truth is that we are temporal beings and things are far beyond our control. There is so much that we cannot bring about because we are powerless to do it. And there is much, much more about us that is deeply unfaithful. We will make promises, but we have, when faced with difficulty, we will not keep them. We've all seen this. Well, the Lord Jesus graciously tells Peter, look, you will, you will, you will deny me three times. But when you have returned, turn and encourage your brethren. This is the responsibility of the believer when she or he, when either one of us or any of us uh, fail the Lord and fall and sin and disappoint the Lord and bring grief to grieve the Holy Spirit. What do we do? Well, we turn. First, we return to the Lord. And secondly, we edify the brothers and sisters in the Lord. But here we are, and I've often complained about this. Here we are in a generation that says almost absolutely nothing about our spiritual struggles. We say little or nothing about the things that we are struggling with, the things that are crying out for attention from the world in us and how weak we are in response to them, and the things that we most desperately need God's people to be praying for us about. One, either we don't believe in the power of prayer, or, or rather the, uh, that, that, that prayer accomplishes or does much as the righteous person, man or woman, prays and entreats the Lord. Either we don't believe in prayer, and that God hears and provides and responds in prayer to his people. Or secondly, we are we really don't want God's help. Do we really not want God's help? Do we really not want God to be present in our life, working through the prayers of his people? 
when in fact we ought to be saying, I'm, I'm struggling right now emotionally. Would you pray for me? We can keep it general. I'm really struggling with temptation over the last couple of weeks and the last month. I'm, I'm really I'm in a spiritual warfare as it right now, and I, I I'm not at liberty to share all the details. But would you pray for me? I mean, these are ways that we can seek prayer for one another and seek others praying for us. I'm really struggling in all the difficulties of being a husband or of a father. I'm facing a season of grave discouragement. I've been struggling with depression or anxiety. I've been struggling with anger. Would you pray for me? My loved one has fallen into sin. Would you pray for them? That they might return and return to the Lord. That they might repent and be saved. Dear brother and sister, we have a responsibility that when we have fallen and failed and we have sinned against the Lord, that we are to turn around and then to encourage the brethren. And how can we do that unless we boldly and humbly explain what we have been struggling with? Peter is to turn around from his denial of Christ and to go to the brethren and say, I denied the Lord Jesus three times. And you know what? The Lord did not let go of me. Even though you might deny the Lord, I encourage you, return to the God of all grace. That's what he should say. Or perhaps he could say, I denied the Lord three times. I'll tell you, it cost me. It harmed my, my love for Jesus Christ. I was so ashamed, dear brothers and sisters. Don't do what I have done. Don't forsake the Lord. Learn from my sin. And see the ways in which Christ ministered to me, even though I denied him. You see... We are to walk humbly with one another. We are to carry one another's burdens. And we are to edify one another. And when we have forsaken the Lord or turned against God or fallen into sin, we are to turn and to encourage the brethren. And perhaps to come alongside alongside someone who is struggling with similar sins to our own and say, this is humbling for me to tell you this, but I have walked where you are walking. I have struggled with what you are struggling with. And I've learned a few things. Can we get a cup of coffee together? And let me tell you and share with you in some way what I, what I learned along the way. And that's what the Apostle Peter is commanded to do. I don't want to miss something, though. <clears throat> Failure in sin really gives the believer courage and honesty and compassion and empathy And it is God's determination that we would be empathetic with one another, sharing one another's burdens, bearing those burdens together, weeping with those who weep, rejoicing with those who rejoice, and you will get there through the highs and lows of the Christian life. You are in my empathy through struggling with similar sins and experiencing similar joys. Now, there's one important thing that Jesus says to Peter here, and I don't want to miss it. And he says, I've prayed for you in verse 32 that your faith may not fail. And you, when you have, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. When once you have turned again. 
The language is not, Peter, if somehow you make it through, I want you to come and encourage your brothers in the Lord and sisters. Nope, he didn't say that. He does not say, Peter, if somehow, some way you are lucky enough to get through those circumstances and to make it through the barrage of Satan, I want you to do this. No, he didn't say that. He says, when you have returned, once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. There's an absolute divine certainty about the fact that Peter will turn away from his sin and return to the Lord. And as sinners, we do that every single time we have sinned against God, even though we are redeemed, even though the power of sin is broken, even though we are no longer enslaved to sin, we still struggle with sin. Isn't that not true? We do. Christians sin. But when we sin in that moment, is not each and every sin a denial of the sovereignty of God, a denial of our need for Jesus Christ, a a, a shaking of our fist, as it were, to God saying, I know better what I need. Is it not in some way a denial of of, of our need of the righteousness of Jesus Christ? But in every moment of sin, is it not true that God the Holy Spirit winsomely calls us back and renews us again day by day, moment by moment, and compels us to return to the Savior who has given Himself for us. Have we not fallen and turned countless times in the Christian life? Peter is a redeemed believer. He is is a child of God. He is not going to, in some way, walk away from the Lord, as it were, lose his salvation, and then return and, and gather it back up again. He has no power to do that. He has no power to do that. And doesn't James tell us that those who have tasted of the things of God and forsake the Lord cannot repent? We are the elect elect of God, kept by the power of God, not by your ability to hold fast to Jesus Christ, but by his ability and the certainty of his power to hold you and not let you go. Jesus is not saying, Peter, you're not a believer yet, but after you've committed this grave sin, then you'll be a believer when you are converted. No, he does not say that. That is not the language used here. When you turn back again, when you turn, you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. There's no uncertainty as to whether or not the believer will turn away from sin, sin which has been committed, engaged in. If you're a child of God, most assuredly, God has your heart. And even though you fall into the most grievous of sins, God continually and always compels you to return. And so what do we do? We should encourage the brethren. But before we do that, we must return to the Lord. There is a safety in which the believer dwells, and that is found in the truth that there is a perseverance of the saints. We will persevere to the end. In our wonderful confession in the larger catechism, it says, may not true believers, by reason of their imperfections and the many temptations and sins that they are overtaken with, fall away from the state of grace? 
True believers, by reason of the unchangeable love of God. It doesn't say because by virtue of how strong they are inside, by virtue of how powerful they are, no. By virtue of a resonant righteousness infused within them, no, it does not say that. By reason of the unchangeable love of God and his decree and covenant to give them perseverance, their inseparable union with Christ, his continual intercession for them, and the spirit and seed of God abiding in them can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation. Peter did not lose his soul in this moment. He was kept by the power of God, immersed in the love of God, and he was in inseparable union with Jesus Christ. Even as Christ was over there in the courtyard, and even as he spoke those words, I have never met this man. And he heard the cock crow three times before dawn. Even then, he was in inseparable union to Jesus Christ. And because of that union, he was forgiven and not forsaken, still beloved of God the Father. And even though he wept bitterly over his sin and was ashamed, nevertheless, God did not cast him off. He was redeemed of of God. He was redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. He was a child of God, and he remains so. So let me say this in our last few moments here. I want to speak about the two great things the Savior does for every Christian. There are two great things that Jesus Christ does for every Christian. There's one thing he does for you. He prays for you. Now you may say, well, no, what Jesus is saying here is he's praying for Peter. Well, no, follow me. Jesus, the language used here, the specific word is to beg. And Jesus says, I am begging, I am praying for you, I am making entreaty for you, I'm, I'm, I'm approaching boldly and begging of the Father that he would keep you from the wiles of the evil one. I'll tell you, in the end, there is nothing standing between you and Satan except for the prayers of Jesus Christ. He prays for you and he prays for you continually. In John chapter 17, verses 1 through 21, Josh read that this morning. And and toward the end of that section, Jesus is praying for his disciples and he is praying a number of different things. And I'll I'll recount for you exactly what he's praying for them. He he says uh, these very things. Let me get to it. He is praying for them, and he prays that um, he prays that they would know the Father and himself. He prays in the high priestly prayer of John 17, verses 1 through 21, that we uh, that they would all be kept from apostatizing the disciples. He prays that they would be one in the Spirit, as the Father and the Son are one. He prays that they would be filled with his joy, that they would be kept from the evil one, that they would be sanctified in the Word of God, that they would love one another, that that love would be evident to the world. He prays that they would be with him to eternity. He prays that they would experience 
experience His love. He prays that the love that He and the Father have for one another would be experienced by them. And then He says, and I don't ask only for these, but I also ask for those who are not yet of this fold, those who have not yet come. Who is that? You and me. You and me. Every subsequent believer who would turn in faith to Jesus Christ, Christ is begging and praying for these. And so when he prays for the disciples, he has prayed for these things for them, but he prays for this for you and for me. He prays that we would know the Father and Himself. He prays that we would be kept from apostatizing. He prays that we would be one in the Spirit as the Father and the Son are one. He prays that we would be filled with His joy. He prays that we would be kept from the evil one. He prays that we would be sanctified in the Word of God. He prays that we would love one another and that that love would be evident to the world. He prays that we would be with Him to eternity. He prays that we would experience His love. He prays that we would know the love of the Father and the Son for one another. He prays for us in other ways too. He prays for us in 1 John 2. John says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father Jesus Christ the righteous. He is our advocate. What does it mean to advocate? It means to entreat, to intercede. What is prayer? Intercession. He prays continually for us. Hebrews 7, verse 34 and following. Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. If Jesus is a priest permanently, is it not the priest's Solemn duties to provide intercession between God and man. That's prayer. That's that's intercession with God the Father. Jesus is continually doing that, and that's what the passage says. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. He always lives to make intercession for you. Can you see the striking, shocking richness of what Jesus Christ does for you? He ever lives to make intercession for you. He prays continually for you, asking extraordinary things. That you might be renewed in your joy. That you might experience and I might experience that the love that God the Father has for God the Son. He prays that we would be one in spirit and in truth and in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. He prays that we might not apostatize. He prays that we would be continually faithful to the Lord until the end of our days. Maybe some of us this morning are feeling our own frailty and we're saying maybe we've come from a week of great Great strife and difficulty. And maybe we are led to think, uh, you know, sometimes I don't know if I'm, I'm going to be faithful to the Lord to the end because sometimes I feel the weakness of my own heart and the tenuous grasp with which I grasp hold of him. It doesn't sometimes seem very strong. Well, you are held by the power of God. 
And Jesus prays for you. He is ever living to make intercession for you. There is never a moment when you pray that you are not heard because he is making intercession for you. There is never a moment when you are not loved by God if you are his child because he is making intercession for you. There is never a moment when Satan being in this world tempting and and suggesting and deceiving you can ultimately have power over you because Jesus is praying for you. Jesus is praying for you. The eternal Son of God who reigns in power, who is commanded, sit at my right hand while I make your enemies your footstool. The Ancient of Days, the, 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 the glorious Prince of Peace, the King of Kings, prays for you. The Son of God prays for you and ever lives to make intercession for you. He begs, he pleads, he intercedes, he stands and pleads when we are wordless and cannot plead. He pleads for the helpless. He pleads for the the, the incontinent. He, ple- he pleads for the, the deaf and dumb and blind. He, he pleads for those who are in hospital beds, who have no control over any bodily function. He pleads for those who are broken in their bodies. He pleads for those who are mentally ill and incapacitated. He prays for his own. You and I should never take pride in somehow our prayers that we prayed and the Lord just gave it to us. And Well, the Lord heard me and he responded to my prayers. Yes, that's true. That's absolutely true. And you should take comfort and encouragement in the Lord. But do you know fundamentally the the causative reason for why God heard you and responded to your prayer? Because Jesus Christ was praying for you. Not because you did it all right, not because you did it so well, not because you were so deeply oratorically skilled and you, you, you put together just the best of language and you coerced God to answer your prayers. No, it was because Christ was praying for you. The eternal Son of God prays for you. He prays for the downhearted. He prays for the wordless. He prays for the the weakest of us all. And his prayers are effectual. His advocacy is always accepted. It's never set aside. It's always heard. He is the one whom the Father loves and with whom the Father is well pleased. He is the one, he is the reason for why Paul writes in, in Romans 8 that there is no one who can condemn, no one who can bring a charge against God's elect because God is the one who has justified us. And because Christ Jesus, who has died, who is raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who is interceding for us. And he has prayed for Peter for this one specific thing, that your faith may not fail. If you are Christ's today, if you belong to the Lord, he is praying for you. Isn't that of deep consolation to our souls? He is praying for me. When you're in the midst of some 
terrible calamity and, and caught up in circumstances that are beyond you and you don't know what to say and you're wordless and you don't even know what to pray, Jesus is praying for you. When one day you're in a hospital bed and you maybe you're in the rest home and your family has sent you there because they need help and you don't remember things as well anymore. And maybe at that point you're struggling to communicate. And you have your own inner thoughts. You've had a stroke. Or you're intubated. Take comfort in this reality. The Lord Jesus Christ is praying for you. If all of a sudden you're hit and you're in a motor vehicle accident and you're wordless and nothing can come out and you're wondering if if you're about to enter into glory or if you ever see your family again, take comfort because Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, is praying for you. When all you can do is weep and you have nothing more to say and words just will not come, Jesus is praying for you. When you're facing deep peer pressure and you're wondering about how you're going to stand up for Christ in the midst of a crooked, evil, and perverse generation, remember this. Jesus is praying for you. During the time when Christ was there and he has multiplied fishes and loaves, he has turned water into wine and he was with them, People then supported his ministry. They were generous in his support. And when they attacked him, they attacked him and not them. But Jesus warns them and says that now it's going to be different. They have to take an interest in their own welfare. He, he will provide, but not with his, his immediate presence like he has thus far. Now they have to look to their own welfare. Even though the Lord is not far away, he is near not in the same way when he walked amongst them. He had protected them thus far. He was their object of the enemy's barbs, but now they will be, and now they must take the initiative. And so they are to carry with them provisions. They are to take up a sword. Unless we in some way adulterate this passage and say this is is Christ commanding us to take up arms and defend the cause of Christ and, and go to the Holy Land and take back the Holy City, Uh, That's not what Jesus is saying here at all. He is rather calling to our attention the reality that we will live in a day when God's people will be persecuted, that we are to take up, yes, our reasonable defense of body and soul and family and love and kin and Christian church, but also we are to take with us all that is needed for our provisions and recognize that we are in a world in which we do not belong. He has not only prayed for them, and he prays for you and for me, but he also has died for you and died for me. In only a few moments, uh, as the passage goes on, if we were to read further, Jesus will die for his disciples, and Peter is numbered also amongst those for whom Christ died. But he references that in Isaiah 53, 12. He was numbered with the transgressors. He was numbered with the transgressors. 
there is a sovereign necessity about the fact that Jesus must die. And in all that Christ does for us, there's nothing so more supremely extraordinary, nor soul-filling, nor sin-dissolving, guilt-removing, soul-filling, encouraging than to hear this from Revelation chapter 12 in the continuation of a passage I shared just a few moments ago. And it says, And they overcame him, the evil one, the accuser, who stands before the throne of God and continually accuses his people. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb. And because of the word of their testimony, they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you having great wrath, knowing that he only has a short time. Dear friends, the accuser, the one who accuses you in your conscience, the one who accuses you before the throne of God, knows that this moment is urgent and that he has only a short time. And we are waiting, awaiting the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. But in the interim, he is praying for you. And he has given himself bodily for you. And by his blood, we are overwhelmingly conquerors through him who loved us and gave himself for us. Let's pray.